So in that spirit, it is my pleasure to welcome you to this morning's conversation on diplomacy beyond the nation state, the megacity challenge. A combined effort by the Atlantic Council South Asia Center, our Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security, and the U.S. State Department. The U.S. State Department is increasingly looking at the role of cities. The Atlantic Council is doing so as well. Um, and we uh, will devote ourselves to that, not just today, but in our own ongoing work. I'd like to thank today's guests and panelists for taking the time to be with us today. Ambassador of India to the U.S., Arun Singh. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, it's great to have you here with us. Um, the U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development and the former mayor of San Antonio, of course, Julian Castro. Uh, the mayor of Mexico City, uh, Miguel Angel Mancera. Uh, I was just witness to a very interesting conversation between the two mayors, now the secretary and the mayor outside, where uh, I was pretty impressed when Julian Castro told me that in his metropolitan area he had 2.7 million people. Uh, but then, of course, the Mexico City mayor uh, uh, talked about his 21 million people um, and, uh, and a discussion of F1 races and NFL teams and, 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 and all the things that mayors can share, um, share notes on and, and experiences on. It's great to have the State Department's Ian Klaus and Catherine Shallow here today. Uh, we very much appreciate this, uh, this uh, cooperation. The emergence of megacities around the world presents an unprecedented phenomenon in human history. As megacities grow in size and number with the six largest megacities now located in Asia, they've become sources of innovation and economic expansion uh, of rising political actors in their various countries, but also security threats and logistical challenges. The special needs and obstacles associated with me megacities have given birth with notions such as smart cities, sharing economies, sparking ever greater methods for meeting the immense needs of highly concentrated populations. But these same densely populated regions have also been susceptible to resource shortages, congestion and overcrowding, and potentially catastrophic terrorist attacks. Global trends surrounding increasing global urbanization, the rapid expansion of information technologies, the depth of interconnections, this all converges in these megacities and force us to rethink uh, conventional approaches uh, to uh, development security. The Atlantic Council has stressed this in our forward-looking work on U.S. global strategy in the 21st century and our strategic foresight work. Uh, this uh, trend of growing uh, megacities together with the trend of uh, the rising global middle class is really defining our times. We're making the case that a more systematic engagement on megacity issues and needs ought to be a core component of the strategic outlook. So to facilitate that conversation, today's event is a lead up to uh, next month's Atlantic Council Conference in Mumbai, uh, devoted entirely to exploring the issues with managing the world's growing megacities. We'll convene in Mumbai high-ranking policymakers, leading academics, civil society practitioners, and security experts to discuss practical policy recommendations for cities such as Mumbai to serve as a basis for strengthening U.S.-Indian relations, using city relationships, as well as encouraging wider cooperation in confronting megacity governance challenges. Uh, to, to begin that conversation today, 
We are extremely pleased that His Excellency Arun Singh, Ambassador of India to the United States, is here to offer his own perspectives. He's held diplomatic assignments in Russia, Ethiopia, Japan, and served as U.S. India's ambassador, uh, served as India's ambassador to Israel and France before assuming his current role in 2015. Uh, we know each other from an earlier time that you were in Washington, D.C. Uh, you were, you're already making a big mark in this city upon your return. It's great to have you here. Speaking recently uh, at a conference on the future of Indian-U.S. relationship hosted by the Carnegie Endowment and the Confederation of Indian Industries, Ambassador Singh said, and I quote, going forward, I see the U.S. continuing to play a role in India's transformation, and I see India and the U.S. joining hands to make the world a better place for our two nations and the rest of the world. Uh, he further quoted Indian Prime Minister Modi as saying, quote, we should not confine ourselves to thinking what India and the U.S. can do for each other, but what we can do together for the world. The Atlantic Council embraces this vision, and we will do what we can do to help uh, uh, achieve it. Uh, we couldn't agree more with you, Mr. Ambassador, uh, and I think megacities and their challenges, which span borders and cultures, is a rife opportunity for U.S.-Indian cooperation for the benefits of millions around the world. Mr. Ambassador, the stage is yours. Mr. Julian Castro, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Frederick Kemp, President of Atlantic Council. I'd like to thank the Atlantic Council for bringing this needed focus and attention to the challenges that the growth of our cities present to both our countries. This also presents an opportunity to highlight the merits of the hitherto unsung collaboration between India and the United States in making our mega cities safe and friendly. India's level of urbanization stands at about 32% of our population. This is below the level of several developing countries. And yet, at over 400 million, India's absolute number of urban residents is exceeded by that of only one country. And our urban population is larger than the to total population of any other country. This is the paradox with which we approach our paradigm of urbanization. And the projection is that in about 15 years from now, the urban population of India would stand at 650 million. In 2011, when our last census data were released, 53 Indian cities boasted a population of over 1 million, with Mumbai and Delhi each having a population well over 10 million. To put this in perspective, as Frederick Kemp had just mentioned, I'm told that the number of American cities with more than a million residents reached double-digit figure for the first time this year, in 2015. Let me also slip in another statistics. The Indian city of Varanasi has the distinction of being the oldest continuously inhabited city with historical records dating back to 3,000 years. But long history and large numbers are not necessarily an unmitigated blessing. They pose the challenge of rejuvenation and restructuring of old cities, introducing modern amenities, making them smart in the IT age sense of the word, while at the same time preserving their lasting ethos and strong heritage. 
According to a high-powered committee, which gave its recommendations to the Indian government in 2011, there is a requirement of investment in urban infrastructure to the tune of $1 trillion over the next 20 years. Hence, for us in India, the mega-city challenge is a living challenge of massive proportions. It manifests itself in the need to find employment and housing, particularly for the poor, the need to provide sanitation and drinking water, the need to build and maintain efficient public transport, to keep vehicular pollution and industrial effluence in check, and to fight crime. The Government of India has been alive to these challenges. A national urban renewal mission was created to cater to the infrastructural needs of our cities. The Prime Minister has personally promoted cleanliness drive and improved solid waste management practices in our cities under the Swachh Bharat or Clean India initiative. Recently, by tapping digital and information technologies, urban planning best practices, public-private partnerships and policy change, the government has sought to transform our cities and build smart cities. 100 such cities have been identified for initial endeavor based on a process of selection and competition. As India's envoy to the United States, I'm glad to see association of the US government, private sector, businesses, and the civil society in each of these initiatives, transformative in their own way for my country. The Bloomberg Philanthropies, for example, have supported the India Smart Cities Challenge on the basis of our Prime Minister's discussion of, with former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg a year ago. The US has been identified as the lead partner in developing smart cities in three Indian cities, Ajmer, Vishakhapatnam, and Allahabad. The USAID, through the Urban India Water Sanitation and Hygiene Alliance, is serving as knowledge partner to support the Prime Minister's 500 cities national urban development mission and Clean India campaign. We also have growing bilateral cooperation for making our mega cities safe and secure. The designs of terrorists over our mega cities was evident to both our countries during 9-11 in New York City and during 26-11 in Mumbai. To meet the challenges of modern day policing in mega cities, the government of India has undertaken a mega city policing initiative with focus on building the technology capabilities of the police forces, police functions like law and order, crime, investigation, counter-terrorism, counter-insurgency, coastal security, industrial security, critical infrastructure protection, intelligence, cybercrime, economic offenses, traffic management, crime against women and children are targeted for improvement under this scheme. Non-technology aspects of the initiative include best practices like community policing, reaching out through education system, training on soft skills, attitudinal change in police personnel, and enhanced role of women police in building trust in communities. Currently, police forces in seven Indian cities, Mumbai, Bengaluru, Hyderabad, Chennai, Delhi, Kolkata, and Ahmedabad, are being modernized under this scheme. CCTV surveillance, command control centers, dial 100 systems, fusion or data centers, highway patrol cars, and aerial surveillance 
uh, some of the technological initiatives being developed and used under this initiative. Over the years, CCTV cameras have proven critical for detecting crime in India. Now with added features of analytics and facial recognition, it is positioning itself as a proactive measure rather than just a reactive tool. Similarly, the Command Control Center is conceived as the heart of the Safe City project. With a network of computer systems and a data center with analysts working on the lines of the fusion centers in the United States. This would enable collection of feeds from CCTV and other devices <clears throat> and will have the capacity to store, analyze, and disseminate information. Implementation of the safe city projects in India is critical to the country's overall development, as much of our economic activity, higher education, science, technology and innovation, and critical information infrastructure reside in the urban space. Hence, mega cities policing is an important component of our overall attempt to improve our urban landscape and beyond that, to transform India. Here again, we have had very promising engagement with the United States. Mega cities policing is one of the six major components of our bilateral homeland security cooperation pursued under the ministerial homeland security dialogue. In our discussion and exchanges in the past few years, Technology and capacity building have emerged as areas where US expertise and Indian demands could be harmonized. Whether it is tackling terrorism, investigation of modern crimes, identification of suspects, managing intelligent traffic system, or building effective command and control system of fusion centers, the US has capacities that can be considered and ad adapted in India for mutual benefit. They will create security in our cities and potential for business and technology partnerships. Of course, mega city policing is only one small part of our growing cooperation in the field of homeland security, where we are engaging on building capacity in cybersecurity and critical infrastructure protection, countering illicit finance, security of global supply chain, and science and technology, to name just a few areas. We have launched a partnership for counter IED cooperation where US experience, technology, and equipment will be valuable to us. We have also agreed to deepen cooperation on law enforcement, law enforcement counterterrorism, and security matters. Security cooperation, in turn, is a subset of our wide-ranging strategic and global partnership. Today, India and the US are consulting and coordinating positions on global and regional issues like never before and have recently extended our triangular development cooperation to 10 developing countries in Africa and Asia. Today, Indian and American scientists are engaged in jointly funded research from atoms to space. Our industries are working on co-developing defense technologies and co-producing defense equipment. Indian and American health professionals have come together to eradicate pandemics and to conduct research. Our citizens are studying, living, and earning their livelihood in each other's countries. The extent and depth of our citizens' interaction is naturally reflected in the intensity and productivity of dialogue, consultation, and collaboration between our governments, now being steered through more than 50 government-to-government -government mechanisms. In short, our cooperation with the US in various aspects of governance of megacities is part of a whole new paradigm of working together 
and forming habits of cooperation between the world's two largest democracies. It takes diplomacy beyond the nation state, as the title of today's discussion eloquently makes clear. Policing and civic governance are under the purview of our state governments in India. Hence, the experience of our collaboration in this field will be richly varied. As our bilateral partnership goes forward under the motto of Sanja Prayas Sabka Vikas or Shared Effort, Progress for All, we need to take our cities along in this endeavor with their myriad challenges and their limitless opportunities. With these words, I wish you success with your conference on mega city security in Mumbai next month. Thank you very much, Mr. Ambassador, for your very thoughtful remarks. I'm Barry Pavel. I'm an Atlanta Council Vice President and uh, Director of the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security. Thank you all for being here for this timely discussion. I am going to introduce our next speaker, the Honorable Julian Castro, the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. I'm going to do it very briefly so he can stick to his schedule and we can hear more from him and less from me. He is here to share his thoughts on how the U.S. government, through his department, is really engaging cities in the United States, but also abroad on a very wide agenda to find positive and hopeful solutions to the, really to the world's greatest challenges. And we'll hear more from him and from the State Department in the panel subsequently. Since July 2014, uh, Secretary Castro has been the Secretary of Ur Housing and Urban Development, so about 14 months. And previously, he served as mayor and city councilman of the city of, Ant of San Antonio as we heard, and during his time there, Secretary Castro became widely recognized for his innovative leadership in social and economic development. And with that, I would love to welcome Secretary Castro to the stage. Good morning. Thank you very much, Barry, for that introduction. Uh, thank you to Ambassador Singh uh, for your remarkable words and for being here today. Uh, as mayor of San Antonio, uh, I had the opportunity to visit uh, Chennai and New Delhi. Chennai was one of our sister cities and uh, was very taken by uh, the beauty and the promise uh, of the nation of India and the great work that is happening there. Uh, I also want to thank and uh, say bienvenido uh, to the mayor of Mexico City Mayor Mancera, thank you so much for being here. Uh, it's true, uh, Mexico City is probably 10 times as big as San Antonio. <laughs> so I told the mayor, I can only imagine how you manage that. Uh, but uh, thank you for being a part of this Atlantic Council Forum. And of course, I'd also like to acknowledge the Atlantic Council and its president, Fred Camp. Fred, thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, and I also want to recognize, of course, the State Department. Uh, who's here from the State Department? Raise your hand my colleagues in the federal government. Thank you all for your leadership uh, and the leadership of Secretary Kerry uh, day in and day out. Uh, I like to think of uh, Secretary Kerry as our all-purpose fixer uh, who has just done a fantastic job. Um, and thank each and every person who is here who I know in their own right uh, is contributing to this dialogue as a policymaker or a scholar or one who works in the federal government. Uh, whether you come from the realm of government or international development, I'm grateful for the way that your efforts 
help to provide additional opportunity for people around the world. We gather today at a time of unprecedented promise. The 21st century has already seen remarkable progress within the global community. In the last 15 years, we've cut extreme poverty by more than a half. We've provided 50 million children with the chance to enter school, and we've made great strides in expanding educational and economic opportunity for young women across the globe. We've reduced infection rates for HIV by 40%, and we've saved more than 40 million lives from malaria and tuberculosis. We've also invested in the future of our planet by harnessing the power of Mother Nature. Renewable resources now account for almost 20% of the world's energy consumption, a number that will only climb as our knowledge and our technology continue to advance. These achievements have helped us arrive at a crucial moment in world history. We now face, as a global community, a fundamental question. Will we remain on this path to progress where shared prosperity lays the foundation for global security? Or will we succumb to the challenges of inequality and of conflict? which sow the seeds of anger, of hopelessness, and destruction that threaten our world. I'm confident that to everyone in the room, the choice is clear. For the path to progress is neither guaranteed nor inevitable. It requires an enduring commitment to inclusive and sustainable growth. It cannot be a narrow road that's limited to the fortunate or to the privileged, but it must be broad enough for all to join and paved with opportunity for every global citizen. It also can't be short-sighted. It must bend toward a future that ensures prosperity, not just for this generation, but for generations to come. In order to achieve inclusivity and sustainable prosperity, we need strong international cooperation at the level of the state, but also increasingly at the level of the city. That's why two weeks ago, dignitaries from more than 150 countries attended the United Nations Summit on Sustainable Development. They outlined a set of ambitious goals that can improve the lives of people across the world. And it'll be up to the leaders in this room to realize the long-term vision of the international community. You see, today, as we stand here in 2015, we are living in a century of cities. The United Nations estimates that two-thirds of the Earth's population will live in urban areas by the year 2050. In every corner of the globe, people are relocating to cities to find a better chance at achieving their dreams. So as the 21st century unfolds, our cities must lead the global effort to expand opportunity. We must foster inclusive growth that reaches every segment of the population, and we must confront the dangers posed by natural disasters and climate change, and explore policies that promote the health and the well-being 
of our people. As a former mayor, I know that oftentimes the most innovative solutions occur at the local level. So I'm honored to join Secretary Kerry in co-chairing the U.S. Committee to the 2016 Habitat III Conference, a forum that will spark international conversation on urban housing and sustainability. Habitat III will provide local leaders from around the world with the chance to make their voices heard, to share strategies that have worked, and to resolve to take further effective action. And today, I'd like to discuss the principles we're using at the Department of Housing and Urban Development to expand opportunity within the United States. Instead of planning for communities, we seek to empower local leaders to develop their own solutions. We're also making sure that these leaders represent more than just the status quo. In order to tackle the greatest issues of our time, we need the help of gifted folks from all walks of life. We need people who have experienced these challenges firsthand and who have developed new ideas for addressing them. So we're forming partnerships that leverage talent and resources from across our society, including foreign nations, federal agencies, local governments, the business community, and members of the nonprofit sector. We're using our philosophy of collaboration and local empowerment to invest in three key areas. The first step is expanding housing opportunity for all Americans. We can only achieve sustainable growth if it's within reach of everyone, and that begins with increasing the availability of affordable housing. Our families spend too much of their incomes on rent today, hard-earned money that could go toward their children's education or saving for retirement. As our cities attract new residents, we must make sure that the supply of housing keeps pace with the demand. That's why President Obama has proposed $300 million in local housing policy grants that would reward regional leaders who have developed creative policies for building affordable housing. HUD is also working to establish the National Housing Trust Fund, which in the coming years should generate hundreds of millions of dollars to help families of modest means find a home. But we also know that expanding housing opportunity is about more than new construction. It also means eliminating barriers that prevent people from enjoying a fair shot at securing quality housing. Even today, too many communities remain isolated by class and by race. So we're providing families with the chance to move out of high poverty areas and into neighborhoods of higher opportunity. We've also introduced a historic rule that will help fight housing discrimination and ensure localities apply taxpayer dollars toward improving housing, infrastructure, and economic development for everyone in their community. That's because the mission of HUD extends beyond a family's front door. A good home is linked to the institutions that surround it. Businesses that offer high-paying jobs, good schools that allow our children to maximize their potential, and accessible transportation that helps folks to get to these jobs 
and to these schools. And that's why the second step in achieving sustainable growth is using a big picture approach that focuses on entire communities. We're revitalizing distressed areas by helping local leaders enact their own plans for community development. Initiatives like Choice Neighborhoods, which leverages nearly $8 in private, nonprofit, and local investment for every $1 of federal money invested. Choice has made a huge difference in places like Boston's Dorchester neighborhood, where our partners have renovated low-income housing, converted a, fa a vacant factory into a high-tech incubator for local entrepreneurs, and financed childhood literacy programs. We're also fostering development by working with our partners across the federal government. That includes our Partnership for Sustainable Communities, an initiative with the Department of Transportation and the Environmental Protection Agency that helps inspire the infrastructure of tomorrow. Our sustainable community grants have impacted more than 140 million Americans in places like Albuquerque, New Mexico, where we've constructed pathways that connect residents to commercial activity in Albuquerque's historic downtown. By relieving congestion and improving pedestrian safety, this effort has produced nearly 100 new businesses and over 700 jobs. And we've engaged with local officials and Native American leaders to spark economic progress along the Rio Grande River that preserves the surrounding ecosystem. HUD also understands that building smarter infrastructure means addressing the dangers posed by natural disasters. So we've partnered with the Rockefeller Foundation to launch the $1 billion National Disaster Resilience Competition, which encourages communities impacted by extreme weather to create their own systems for managing floods, wildfires, earthquakes, and more. This competition embodies the greatest benefits offered by international cooperation. It follows a model established by our groundbreaking Rebuild by Design project, which drew upon Dutch engineering to help the Northeast recover from Hurricane Sandy and come back stronger than ever. And I'm proud to report that our partners in Rebuild by Design and the Disaster Resilience Competition are working to apply this framework in other countries. You see, HUD also understands that our big picture approach must account for the biggest picture of all, tackling the immense challenges of global climate change. And that leads me to the third and final step in achieving sustainable growth, preserving our planet by investing in clean and renewable energy. We've helped our nation make tremendous progress in the President's Better Buildings Challenge, a daring push that seeks to improve energy efficiency in commercial, government, and residential buildings by 20% within a decade. A few months ago, I had the chance to see the incredible work happening in Denver, where the city had installed 10,000 solar panels at its North Lincoln homes. This state-of-the-art technology has reduced annual energy costs by 19%, and it's boosted the local economy by supporting a Colorado-based solar manufacturer. I want to applaud Denver Mayor Hancock for embracing the Better Buildings Challenge and for making Denver a model in energy-efficient public housing.
And earlier this year, I also joined Mayor Bill de Blasio in New York to launch the biggest public housing energy savings program in the nation. This project will fund over $100 million in upgrades in nearly 300 developments throughout New York City. It'll dramatically lower greenhouse gas emissions, save millions of dollars in energy costs, and produce over 500 jobs, many of which will be filled by residents of public housing. New York and Denver aren't alone. We're seeing similar efforts across the nation, from Boston to Yolo County, California. Work that allows residents and local businesses to share in the economic opportunity created by the renewable industry and which helps preserve the precious gift of planet Earth. HUD's work to expand housing opportunity, to promote community development, and to invest in our planet all advance one common goal, helping our nation to achieve a brighter future for all its residents. Our focus on collaboration and local empowerment will also ensure that more people have the opportunity to be on a path to progress. I know that each of you shares that vision for mutual prosperity. We know that whether we talk about the nations of the world or the cities of the world, our destinies are intertwined we must decide whether we'll move forward together or retreat separately into an age marred by inequality, injustice, and environmental destruction. I'm convinced that efforts like this which share best practices, strengthen cooperation, and build for the future together can ensure that the path to progress will be a bright one. Thank you so much for all that you are doing to help make that possible. Thank you. Thanks very much to Secretary Castro for those uh, very thoughtful remarks. Good morning again, everyone. Um, this past June, the Council hosted in this room an ambassador's roundtable with ambassadors from several different continents to discuss the role of non-state actors in, in global governance and world affairs. This was part of the Council's strategy initiative, which is looking at developing strategic frameworks, not just policy recommendations for a range of different functional and regional challenges. At that time, we asked the ambassadors to weigh in on the State Department's 2015 Quadrennial um, Diplomacy and Development Review, the QDDR, which, has, which had just been released at the time. And specifically, we wanted them to reflect on the QDDR's emphasis on the role of non-state actors in the world, the, the role you know, for good, a, a lot of good coming out of non-state actors' activities. Uh, and we just heard about some of them, but also in some cases, 
creating new types of challenges in security and in other areas. So today's event and this panel is to some extent a continuation of that uh, very interesting discussion and, and I, would, I would certainly commend it um, on the Atlanta Council website. So we're pleased once again to host this event in cooperation with the State Department through its three-day Cities at State initiative. And today we want to pose some similar questions. For example, why is urbanization so important now? Hasn't it been going on for a long time? How are cities behaving as actors in the world? And how do they contribute to global, to global governance, including regarding international security? Or maybe it's better to, be, to, to phrase that term global security, if you're suggesting that it's not just an international landscape. And how should countries work with uh, the world cities in their own planning, strategies, policies, diplomacy, and all of the other activities that countries uh, conduct on the global stage. And I, 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 from my own vantage point, from having worked in the US government, there's a long way to go. But I think this type of initiative from the State Department and from um, uh, many of the speakers whom we've heard this morning really will help us to do a better job of navigating the challenges and, and um, leveraging some of the opportunities out there. So I am really thrilled to welcome a, a very distinguished panel um, to continue this discussion on the role of cities in global governance. We're just honored and thrilled to, to have um, uh, uh, Mayor uh, Mancera, the mayor of Mexico City here, uh, very thrilled and extremely honored. Um, to my immediate right is Catherine Shalau. She is director of the State Department's QDDR office, which is becoming m more important as the years go on, as the QDDR continues to grow in emphasis and as, as it continues to help the State Department uh, uh, not just take a strategic view on, on what its priorities should be, but then I think we'll hear from Dr. Shalau, how do we enforce and implement the, st the strategy that's already on the street? And then um, finally, Dr. Ian Klaus, uh, representing the Secretary of State's policy planning staff. Uh, before the event, I jokingly told him, oh, you're in charge of cities. Um, and so we should ask him about that during the questions and during the discussion. L let me start with Mayor Mancera. Um, and maybe the best thing to start with is, could you give us an overall assessment of Mexico City today? What kind of city is it? What kinds of challenges do you face? What are the strengths that you think such a large megacity possesses on the world stage today? Okay, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, good morning to all. Um, I want to say thank you for the Secretary Kerry, the Michael Bloomberg, and Bloomberg Philanthropy, and uh, obviously uh, the Council. Uh, somebody told me uh, I can speak uh, Spanish, mm -hmm. and uh, I take this uh, opportunity, and uh, thank you for my translator and uh, sorry for the inconvenience. La Ciudad de México, actualmente, es una ciudad de metropolitana de 20 millones de personas. Uh, in Mexico City, the population currently is 20 million people. Cinco millones de vehículos. There are five million vehicles. Y obviamente retos eh, de habitación de miles y miles de demanda and obviously there are challenges when it comes to the demand for housing. It's, uh, it numbers thousands in day-to-day -day life. Hace 30 años era la ciudad más contaminada del mundo. Uh, 30 years ago, it was the most polluted city in the world. 
eh, era una ciudad que la ONU catalogó como una ciudad peligrosa para, lo, para la infancia. It was a city that the UN classified as a dangerous city for uh, children. Uh, hoy tiene eh, un reconocimiento en C40. Hoy participa en los diferentes foros medioambientales. Today it participates in uh, environmental forums, environmental fora. And in C40 also. Eh, eh, y bueno, eso nos ha permitido que eh, podamos estar compartiendo un programa de cambio climático. Es un programa que ahora llega hasta 2020. Enfocado a dos, dos eh, líneas fundamentales. Mitigación. One is mitigation. Y el otro tema es la eh, resiliencia. And the other issue is Capacitación for, para resiliencia. And resilience training. Diría yo que básicamente compartimos las políticas públicas de las grandes ciudades del mundo. Movilidad. Rescate de espacio público. Uh, reclaiming public space. Eh, creación de áreas verdes. Uh, creating green areas. Y un tema muy importante que tiene que ver con el género. And a very important issue that is related to gender. Siempre nos preguntan por qué con el género, qué tiene And que ver el género con el cambio climático. We're always asked, well, why gender? What does that have to do with climate change? En México aún tiene, la Ciudad de México aún tiene zonas rurales. Uh, in Mexico City, there are still rural areas en donde se continúa cocinando con carbón. Where people still cook with uh, charcoal, coal. Y ahí queremos eh, hacer un cambio enfocado a las, eh, a las mujeres que cocinan. And there we would like to affect change by focusing on women who do the cooking. Hacia cocinas limpias. Towards clean cooking. Entonces, este reto lo tenemos planteado ya. A 2020 debemos sustituir más o menos do, entre 12 y 15 mil vehículos contaminantes de transporte público. Uh, so this is a challenge that we've uh, laid out for, ourself, for ourselves to the year 2020. Uh, one of our goals also is to replace uh, 12 to 15 uh, vehicles, dirty vehicles. Y estaremos trabajando con más de 225 kilómetros de metro. And we're also working with uh, the metro system, uh, 20, 225 kilometers of the metro system. Y con más de 10 líneas de BRT. And uh, over 10 VRT lines. Pero estamos convencidos que este es un esfuerzo de las ciudades y que las ciudades son actores fundamentales para el cambio. But we are convinced that this is something that cities need to do and that cities are absolutely crucial when it comes to change. Me parece que uno de los principales obstáculos ha sido el tema de financiamiento. I think that uh, some of the main obstacles have been financing. Eh, yo creo que si se perfeccionaran los mecanismos de financiamiento global e internacional. I think that if we were to perfect mechanisms for global and international financing. Las ciudades podríamos avanzar con mucha mayor velocidad.
that cities could uh, make progress that is uh, much faster. No quiero quedarme con todo el tiempo. And I don't want to take up all the time we have. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, you gave us a very good sense of a, a wide range of uh, some of the major challenges that you deal with. I, I want to I ask you to take up a little more time and then we'll turn to our other panelists. And I think the key question that, that the frame for this event suggests is how do, how do you work with, I was going to say, how does Mexico City, how do you, Mr. Mayor, uh, work with other cities around the world uh, to share ideas about how to deal with the challenges, to look for opportunities? What's your international sort of presence? Tenemos la participación permanente con C40. We have permanent participation with C40. Empezamos trabajando muy fuerte con Nueva York, con Michael Bloomberg. We started uh, working uh, very closely together with New York and Michael Bloomberg. Muchas de las estrategias de rescate público que hoy tiene la Ciudad de México. Uh, many of the strategies for reclaiming public space in Mexico City. Tienen que ver directamente con, con, con Bloomberg. Are con directly tied Bloomberg to Philanthropy, con Michael Bloomberg, con su equipo. Uh, they're directly tied to Michael Bloomberg, Bloomberg Philanthropies, and his, his team. No son sencillas porque eh, cuando las implementas en una ciudad de 5 millones de vehículos, eh, la reacción no es sencilla, pues. Uh, it's not a simple thing to do because when you implement something like this in a city where there are 5 million cars, the reaction <laughs> is not an easy one. En el momento que decidimos eh, tener bicicletas en la Ciudad de México, 6,500 hoy por hoy. Uh, so at one point we decided to have bicycles in Mexico City. Currently there are 6,500 of them. Y le quitas carriles de circulación a los, a los automóviles. That means taking uh, traffic lanes away from motorists. A la gente no le gusta. And people don't like that. <laughs> eh, si, eh, Si, si le dieras a escoger a cualquier persona, preferiría utilizar el automóvil. Es decir, you, es muy difícil desarraigar la idea del uso del automóvil. If you gave a person his or her druthers, that person would rather drive, all things considered. So it's very difficult to uproot the concept of driving. Sin embargo, la apuesta es en ese sentido. La Ciudad de México hoy es el cuarto sistema más grande de bicicletas en el mundo. Uh, but that is something that we are investing heavily in. Currently, Mexico City has the fourth largest uh, cycling system in the world. And I don't know if it's the cheapest, but I think it may well be. Uh, y, y bueno, estamos creando más ciclovías. And so we are creating more bike lanes. Bici estacionamientos. Uh, lots for parking bicycles. Son conceptos que no se tenían en una ciudad que creció de manera desordenada. It's something that we did not have in a city that grew in a disorganized way. Porque la gente trabaja en la ciudad y vive a dos horas de distancia. Because people work in the city but live two hours away. Entonces, todo esto tiene que ver con lo que escuchaba yo del secretario Castro. So all of this is related to what I heard Secretary Castro say. La planeación urbana y compartir las buenas prácticas. Tenemos memorándum de entendimiento con Chicago, con Los Ángeles, con Boston, con uh, 
Atlanta, si no mal recuerdo. Y pues debemos de tener con Washington, porque no veo por qué no debemos de tener uno con Washington, pero es parte de, de lo que yo observo. Cada vez que voy a una ciudad, observo y, 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 y creo que de ahí se aprende mucho. It all comes down to uh, urban planning, sharing best practices. We have a memoranda of understanding with Chicago, Los Angeles, Boston, Atlanta. I uh, think perhaps with Washington, I don't see why we wouldn't, but it's all, uh, this is, it's all a part of this. It's uh, what I do when I go to different cities. I see what goes on around me, and I believe that I can learn quite a bit from this. Hay que recordar ahora la Asamblea de la ONU, la última Asamblea de la ONU, el el día pasado, 28 de septiembre, que ahora ha incluido este tema del urbanismo dentro de las 17 metas replanteadas como una parte fundamental. Uh, I uh, recall the UN Assembly that was held um, just a few days ago on September 28th, and it included urban development as one of the 17 new uh, reestablished goals as an important point. Build sustainable includes safe and resilient cities and human settlements to achieve this goal to active participation and involve of cities is fundamental, right? Entonces, yo creo que este es una algo que debemos de tener muy presente porque nos está marcando hacia dónde vamos. Bueno, el Papa habla de cambio climático. I think this is something that we need to keep in mind because it's something that is very much in our future. Even the Pope is talking about climate change. No, yo creo que hay una señal clara que todo el mundo está involucrado. I think it's a very clear sign that everyone's involved. La religión está involucrada con el cambio climático. Religion is involved in climate change. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Mayor. Thank and you. Now I'd like to uh, ask uh, Dr. Shalo, director of the QDDR office, the U.S. State Department, why did it focus on this area? What made you, you know, in a, in a very singular strategy document from uh, the Secretary of State, what, how did the State Department decide that, that cities need to be emphasized in such a, in such a way that, it, that makes it so critical for U.S. diplomacy in the world? Mm -hmm. uh, a couple things, and feel free to jump in, because yeah, I think yeah, you were part you. of this process. I've been in this job for five weeks. And so there are a few holes in there. <laughs> I'm going to milk that for everything it's worth. Um, but uh, also, I don't know if it would be worthwhile just to say a couple of things general about the QDDR. Um, the QDDR was started in 2010 by Secretary Clinton. We completed the first cycle 2010 um, in 2014 of, of making changes in the department. And now the 2015 was just released, as, as you mentioned, in April of this year. And we're in the implementation phase of the 2015 QDDR. And what this document is, is basically a framework or roadmap to make the necessary changes within the department and in our bilateral or our multilateral relationships and bilateral relationships that take us into the future. What does the State Department need to look like five years down the line, 10 years down the line to do our jobs better? And so this year's QDDR basically had three buckets, strategic, agile, dynamic. And I'm going to work backwards, dynamic organization. What changes do we need to make within the institutional culture to make it a more dynamic workplace that can be more, more agile and move quicker with the, the quick, quickly changing international situation? How do we handle data management? How do we handle knowledge management? How do we address risk? Those kinds of questions that we have to ask as an institution. The second one is agile workforce. 
how do we, how, what, what do we do to create a more agile workforce that has better support and can both be happier and more efficient in the jobs that they do, more innovative, be, be supportive in the innovation and risk that they take. And that is everything from, again, how to handle risk for an individual in innovation, how to be more innovative, how to create training that is more meaningful and outside opportunities that are more meaningful and bring a richness to the State Department that we don't have now from outside sources. The last one is strategic, strategic policy priorities. The Secretary has four in this document. And I would say three of them relate to the, the conversation we're having today, but two very strongly. Uh, the first one is shared prosperity. The second one is con um, conflict and um, uh, <laughs> countering violent extremism. How could I forget what that means, right? <laughs> um, the third one is climate change. And the last one is, um, dang, I'm blanking. I guess it's not important. <laughs> I suddenly feel like somebody on a debate stage at a Republican debate. <laughs> It'll come back to me. Uh, anyway, uh, particularly climate change and CBE, I think, are, are something that the State Department has recognized that cities need to be more involved in. Now, to the question that you asked, why cities in this document? And I think it's a recognition by the department in the 21st century that um, in the 20th, 20th century, the State Department's work was government to government. Foreign policy was government to government. More and more in this interconnected world, um, other actors play a role. And it isn't just cities or, or governors or local officials, it's also non-governmental officials. It's, it's religious leaders. Um, it's people from all walks of life, as Secretary Castro said in his remarks, that, that, that have an effect on on the policies that we make and the bilateral relationships that we have. Um, I address, in, in, in my previous job, I did a lot of addressing to exchange students. And I always told them that if you think that the Dalai Lama or Greenpeace or Chevron are not part of our foreign policy today, you're wildly naive. But cities specifically, I think, are very important to this process because they are so much more agile. And they are cutting edge and so much farther ahead than, than our federal governments often are on these important issues of climate change and, and economic sustainability. So I think we see it as, as strengthening the US as a whole, as a whole of America approach to our efforts on climate change, which is one of our strategic priorities. I see, thanks very much. I might turn to Ian very quickly now to follow up. If you could elaborate on this emphasis on cities, I know in, in one of his speeches, President Obama talked about the, um, the utility of the United States forming alliances, not just with other countries, but with non-state actors as well. So what's the sort of core reasoning for the State Department's emphasis on, on cities now? And then if you could project for us five years out, if you could sort of help us think, wh where are these trends headed? What does this mean for the State Department and for mayors like um, our, our esteemed guest? You wouldn't, you wouldn't happen to have the Strategic Foresight Initiative. Would you? <laughs> um, <laughs> can I just say at the outset, Barry, that it's great to be here at the Atlantic Council in particular talking about cities. Uh, thank you, Fred. Uh, and Peter Engelke, because um, I've said this before, but for years there's been a whole community in the interagency here who's been interested in the intersection of cities uh, and various issues. And the Atlantic Council became something of a hub. It was almost a home where we could exchange ideas for lack of another place. And so as we've sort of advanced those conversations into the policy realm, it's the sort of just the dynamic relationship between think tanks, um, scholars, and people in policy is the best case I've sort of experienced in it. So thank you for having us. And I'm humbled to be on the stage with you talking about cities. <laughs> um, I think and I would also just note that it's not that the State Department is just discovering cities. 
Uh, Rita Jo Lewis was a special representative to Intergovernmental Affairs, and we've had great leadership. Secretary Kerry has uh, spoken about this repeatedly. Uh, Councillor Tom Shannon has been a remarkable innovator in terms of what we do at posts in terms of cities. Uh, David Duckenfield is a leader currently in the department on what we do in cities. It's, so it's, a, it's an ongoing effort. Um, and that gets to uh, how we're approaching it now and why. Um, and I think that uh, the mayor mentioned uh, Catherine as well, a couple of the sort of global challenges that we all have to work together to fix. Climate change is clearly one um, from the perspective of uh, the State Department, clearly uh, the transnational violent extremism threat is one. And these are um, global issues that require global responses. Um, and it's been clear that, uh, well, let's just look at the numbers. People live in cities. Cities where economic growth happens. Cities where innovation happens and solutions are found. Cities are the incubators of political leaders. If we're not engaging them diplomatically, we're missing some of the action, obviously. Um, so there is this sort of solution-based uh, diplomacy, I think, that has value in terms of engaging cities on the, these global challenges. Then, of course, we're the US State Department. Um, and we have bilateral relationships. And cities are increasingly important political actors in their own countries as well as urbanization progresses. And so the question of, this is something to do with, as Catherine was saying, the sort of diffusion of power space. Um, but as you see religious actors, civil society, certain businesses becoming more important, clearly, most evident among those trends might be the increasing role of cities. And so if we're not engaging them bilaterally on a case-by-case -case basis, because urbanization uh, is very sort of boutique in terms of how it happens in each different country, then we're missing a diplomatic opportunity. Thanks very much. I'm going to ask uh, a, one more question or two, but if I could ask the audience to prepare a couple of your questions if you have them, and then we'll, we'll turn to you very shortly. I wanted to ask Mayor Mancera a question that we ask a lot of our when, when the Atlantic Council hosts a, a national security leader from the Pentagon or, or, or um, somewhere else, we, we often ask them, what keeps you up at night? What is your greatest <laughs> worry? And we'll hear lots of scary scenarios that then keep me up at night. But I, I would love to ask you this question, Mr. Mayor. What, what, what makes you, when you're most worried, what is the greatest challenge that, that keeps you up at night, if, if you have one? <laughs> Bueno, la Ciudad de México es una ciudad que exige velar. Esto quiere decir que no duerme nunca. Well, Mexico City is a city that causes insomnia, so I hardly ever sleep. Ahora, acabamos de instalar la alerta sísmica en todas las bocinas de la ciudad. Estos son más o menos cerca de 9,000 bocinas sonando al mismo tiempo. We just installed a seismic alert that is going to be used in all the horns in the city, so you will have 9,000 horns all going off at the same time. Las, eh, las instalé y a los cinco días tuvimos un sismo que pensaron que lo había yo inventado porque para probar el sistema, ¿no? Uh, we installed them, and then five days later, there was an earthquake, an earthquake, and people thought that I was responsible for it because I just wanted to test out the system. Podrán imaginar cuando sonaron las 9,000 bocinas a las 12 de la noche. And you can imagine what it sounded like when 9,000 horns went off at midnight. Las redes sociales hicieron presa del, del alcalde. ¿no? 
the social media really went after the mayor. <laughs> Pero realmente una ciudad como la Ciudad de México, todos los días estás preocupado por, por grandes temas, como se está diciendo aquí. Uh, but in a city like Mexico City, the truth is that every day you're worried about a very important issue. Son uh, 12.000 toneladas de basura diaria. Uh, we collect 12,000 tons of trash every day. Tenemos uh, riesgo de inundación. Uh, we are at risk of flooding. Riesgos de terremoto. There is an earthquake risk y una demanda de vivienda más o menos de 70,000 viviendas anuales. And we have a demand for about 70,000 decent housing units yearly. Además de que es el centro político de México. And it's also the political center of Mexico. Con todo eso agregamos el cambio climático. So add climate change to all of this. Eh, esto la verdad es que no permite dormir. Yo pensé que iba a dormir aquí, pero no, tampoco pude dormir. The truth is, all of this keeps me up at night, and I would love to sleep here, but I can't sleep here either. Es, es un, yo creo que las, las grandes ciudades, por eso es importante este tipo de foros. That's why I love this kind of forum. Mi, mi reconocimiento al secretario Kerry, porque la verdad es cuando yo vi la invitación por parte del secretario Kerry, And I would like to congratulate Secretary, Secretary Kerry because when I saw Secretary Kerry's invitation, es una señal muy clara de que todos estamos muy preocupados por el cambio climático. Es una realidad. It was a very clear sign that we are all quite worried about climate change and that it is a reality. Normalmente en la Ciudad de México las lluvias deberían determinar eh, por ahí de septiembre quizá. Normally in Mexico City it stops raining more or less in September. Hoy no lo sé. Hoy no sé cuándo van a terminar. Today I don't know. I don't know when it's going to stop raining. Lo que llamábamos lluvias atípicas. Uh, what we used to call atypical rain. Ahora se han vuelto comunes. Are now, it's now common. Son uh, lluvias que en uh, algunas ciudades pudieran generar grandes inundaciones and we're talking about the kind of rain that could cause severe flooding in some cities. Es, es un tema sumamente serio que de verdad requiere una estrategia de prevención de prevención de desastre, de fondos de prevención de desastre. Nosotros creamos fondos para subsanar, para remediar desastres. It's an issue that is extremely serious and requires some serious uh, disaster prevention action and so we have allocated some funds in order to do this. Pero deberemos de, deberíamos de tener los fondos para prevenir los desastres. But what we really need are funds for disaster prevention. Yo creo eso. I believe. Well, thank you very much. Um, we can now open this forum up to a broader discussion. If you have questions, just please raise your hand and, uh, and then um, identify yourself um, when, uh, when the microphone comes your way. Uh, and I'll call on you. But I have lots more questions I'm going to ask until we have a question right here from a, a State Department official, I believe. 
Hi, yes, my name is Ashley Donahue. I'm from the State Department's Bureau of International Organization Affairs, and I do count myself among the, um, the few and the proud um, excited about cities and State Department and confirm Ian is our guy in charge of cities. Um, and also I want to double his thank you to the Atlantic Council and particularly Peter, who's been, I think, really on the forefront of, of strategic thinking on this issue, and we appreciate it. Um, my question is for Ian and for Catherine, and I was hoping you could address sort of some of the challenges that you've seen in trying to take the State Department, which is very focused on sort of bilateral government-to-government -government, um, relations, and how it's uh, a bit challenging to get, get our principals and, and other working parts of the department to focus on this, and how you think we can uh, do better. Publicly? <laughs> um, <laughs> the uh, one of the the interesting things, thank you. One of the interesting things uh, I think about the cities and foreign policy nexus um, is that it starts off very. Um, let's use the word sexy. In 2030, 60% of the world will live in cities, and according to McKinsey's, 600 uh, those 600 cities will produce 50% of economic growth. You know, you have all these numbers, and you see, um, and then I listen uh, to the mayor, and he knows how many bicycles he has, and how many cars there are, and how many tons of waste there are. You know, I mean, this is uh, detailed making a city work stuff. The, the shift um, for working on cities inside the State Department is, is moving from beyond the sort of Global Trends 2030 report and that cities matter and trying to figure out very weedy, bureaucratic, how do you get people to engage on this stuff when you have resource limitations, when you have certain national political uh, constraints. And, and that's the sort of thing that ends up happening um, through just shoe leather, in my experience. Um, and so there's a team of us, you're one of them, who've been working very hard on this, and luckily we have a very senior leadership in the form of Secretary Kerry right now who recognizes some of the ways in which cities are crucial uh, in terms of addressing global challenges. But uh, there's nothing um, exciting uh, or riveting about trying to enact bureaucratic change. <laughs> um, I'm gonna say the field is the biggest yeah. challenge. Um, in the sense that um, we have been talking about engaging with cities within the department here in Washington a long time, as Ian has said, um, and marginally out in the field. And I think our, when our chiefs of mission go out into the field, or our DCMs, anybody, the, the entire mission, when they go out into the field, they don't have this, the experience, the knowledge, and the toolkit necessary to take it over the threshold. Because ultimately, if we're gonna ask a city like Mumbai or Mexico City to engage, you know, to engage on climate change, either with one of our American cities or, or somehow in some other subnational way. Our chiefs of mission are often, they, they, they're not equipped to make that happen. They understand it's important to the department, but they're not quite sure that's a new type of engagement for them. Um, and, and making it happen bureaucratically is even more difficult. Plus, pile on top of that, that the field is often faced with an array, a, a huge array of, of priorities from the department that they have to carry out with very limited resources. So this is just another thing, which is a very important thing, and all of us agree on this, that the chiefs of mission have to fit into their pocket and make happen for the department here in Washington. Um, so that, that's what I would say is your biggest challenge, is think about the toolkit that you give to a chief of mission when he goes out um, to, to address these issues 
and training as well. And if I could just add one other thing, open, resilient democracies. That was the last strategic priority. I, I remembered it while I was sitting here. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. I knew that was going to come. Uh, Mr. Mayor, I, I was wondering if, from your point of view, um, do you work with the national government in Mexico to achieve some of your goals internationally? How do you, how do you work with, your, with, with the, the Mexican government regarding uh, you know, working uh, with other, other mayors in other cities and other countries? Es cierto, el gobierno federal, el presidente de la república, ha referido este interés por el cambio climático. It's true that at the level of the federal government, the uh, president of the republic has talked about his interest in climate change. Pero la realidad es que queda en el compromiso de cada ciudad y en el trabajo de cada ciudad. But the truth is that the commitment lies with each city and the work lies with each city. Es una responsabilidad propia de cada uno de los alcaldes, de cada uno de los gobernadores. It's the responsibility of each mayor and each governor. Y obviamente hay que destinar presupuesto. And obviously it needs to be included in the budget. Es donde yo insisto que si, que si no se toma en serio esto eh, es, es muy riesgoso. And that is something I talk about repeatedly, that if we don't take this seriously, it's very risky. El gobierno federal lanza la política, es decir, el interés por este cambio climático. The federal government talks about policy or about an interest in climate change. Pero todavía no hay una potencia en, el, en la parte de la acción, en la parte económica but uh, there is still no uh, strength or power in the financials, on the financial side of things. Me parece que deberíamos de crear más incentivos, <coughs> más fondos verdes. I think we must create greater incentive, more green funds. Es un contrasentido que hoy los vehículos más caros sean los vehículos eléctricos. It doesn't make sense that electric vehicles are the most expensive vehicles. Cuando es la solución para, that is the solution. para el tema de la, de la contaminación ambiental. That's the solution when it comes to uh, environmental pollution. Realmente hay ciudades, y yo lo pude ver en una reunión, por ejemplo, en Quito. There are some cities, and I was able to see this at a meeting in Quito. Donde los alcaldes no, no tenían eh, herramientas financieras para poder hacer cambios de sus eh, transportes públicos. Uh, the mayors had no funds in order to make changes in their public transportation systems. Y esto debiera ser un... Yo creo que un tema, no sé si esté considerado así, no quiero ir más allá de, las, de lo que me corresponde e interferir con el eh, Departamento de Estado, pero yo creo que esto es un tema de seguridad nacional. And uh, I think, and I, this may not be the case, and I don't, know, I don't want to go uh, beyond... Uh, parece que el cambio climático... I don't want to go beyond things here, but I think that this is a, a matter of security. Sí. National security. Eh, nosotros estamos buscando eh, destinar cada vez más fondos y, y más incentivos para los temas verdes. Uh, we are thinking of allocating more and more funds uh, for these incentives and uh, green funds. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Mayor. We have a question right here from Fred Kemp. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Uh, I have one question for you, and then uh, and then for our State Department colleagues, a different question. Um, uh, first of all, it's an honor to have you here. Thank you so much. Uh, we have an Adrian Arsh Latin America Center where we do a lot of work in Mexico, Mexican energy reform, and so I look forward at the Atlantic Council to an ongoing dialogue with you relationship. Uh, my question is on homeland security. 
Um, I know a lot about what New York is doing. It's almost a parallel government with intelligence services encountering extremism, et cetera, et cetera. How big of an issue is this for you? Who do you learn from in terms of cities and, 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 and what kind of infrastructure do you think is necessary for your city? And then my question for the, our State Department colleagues is, um, uh, I agree wholeheartedly, I think Peter Engelke is doing terrific work and I, I think we have to learn a lot from cities. But if you're looking at the two global issues these cities help you solve, say if there were a, a G20 of the 20 biggest cities and mayors, what would they, there is something like that. We talk, talk about that a little bit because it's one thing to theoretically say yes we have to have that relationship but what do, what do they help the State Department solve in terms of a global issue? Bueno, eh, la Ciudad de México tiene una relación permanente con el gobierno federal. Well, Mexico City has a permanent relationship with the federal government. El gobierno federal es el, el que eh, por disposición de ley tiene el centro de inteligencia de México. Uh, the federal government by law is in charge of the Mexican intelligence service. Y que está en conexión con todos los demás servicios de inteligencia mundial. And therefore it is connected with, uh, in, with intelligence services globally. Nosotros cooperamos y hoy por hoy somos la ciudad que más capacidad tecnológica tiene en el país. Uh, we cooperate with them and currently we have the greatest technical capacity, technological capacity in the country. Tenemos la, eh, mayor, el mayor alcance de cámaras de vigilancia. We have the largest reach when it comes to security cameras. Eh, solamente propias del de gobierno, eh, estamos, eh, estaremos arriba de 22 mil cámaras, solo las propias. Uh, when it comes to uh, just the government's cameras, there are 22,000 of them that belong to the government más todo lo que implica la tecnología de los, de los demás espacios públicos y, de, y espacios privados que ven hacia la vía pública. Entonces, estamos haciendo inteligencia todo el tiempo, pero, pero la información, la información dura o la información de seguimiento es del gobierno federal. The information, the principal information is the federal <laughs> government, not the Mexico uh, plus City. Plus, we're talking about the all the technology in public spaces, in private spaces that look out onto public spaces. So we're conducting intelligence activities constantly, but the hard information or the follow-up information belongs to the federal government. Cuando llega, se llega a tener una alerta. Mm -hmm. When there's an alert. Esta alerta se comparte con la Ciudad de México. This alert is shared with Mexico City. Y, México, y la Ciudad de México pone en marcha toda su capacidad para colaborar con el gobierno federal. Pero and, es responsabilidad del gobierno federal. And Mexico City uses everything in its capacity, does everything in its capacity to aid the federal government, assist the federal government. Es una ciudad en donde diariamente iniciamos eh, 600, eh, más o menos 600 casos de corte legal. En uh, Mexico City, every day approximately 600 uh, legal cases are opened every day. Y que, por cierto, con el gobierno de los Estados Unidos hemos tenido un gran apoyo para el cambio de enjuiciamiento hacia los juicios orales. And with, uh, together with the U.S. government, we've had a tremendous amount of support from the U.S. government uh, for changing our system to the oral system. 
Thank you very much. I'm told that, um, that Mr. Mayor needs to leave right away for a, a discussion with Secretary Kerry. So I may excuse him and thank him so much and look forward to a continuing dialogue with you, as Fred Kemp said. Thank you very much, and we'll continue with the rest of our panel as well. Thank you very much for the question. Thank you very much. So, Fred Kemp's question. Fred. <laughs> um, uh, the president, at, at his speech at UNGA just a couple weeks, last week, uh, spoke quite a bit about uh, global order norms. That's a, a, a framework that sounds abstract, but in fact is quite concrete and was set up after World War II, for the most part, it's institutions that we're all familiar with, IMF and Bretton Woods, it has norms with regard to sovereignty and behavior in the international arena. There are trade organizations that surround this. It's a very concrete sort of thing, although, again, it sounds abstract. That global order sort of exists at some altitude. And then there's another one, per the question of sort of city leadership around the world. That's, it's on an alternative order, but it's like a substrata uh, that is groups like C40 or ICLE or all these groups of subnational leaders, it's a terrible term, but we use it, who are working together to solve global problems. One of the architectural challenges is bringing those two together in useful ways, or as a Ministry of Foreign Affairs, as a State Department, uh, linking up with some of the, the substrata ones, so to speak, um, because uh, Part of the logic behind something like C40 is that they're solving problems because some other people, I won't name them, are failing to. Um, and so working together isn't necessarily, uh, it wasn't the first step when they were set up, understandably so. Um, but I would just point to an example that our cities, our climate is a, is a partnership between the State Department uh, and Bloomberg Philanthropies, and it's working with sustainability directors and mayors to advance best practices on uh, climate change and sustainability. The neat thing about that when we're talking about sort of uh, merging levels is that it's taking one of the sort of legacy uh, old school programs of the State Department, exchanges, people to people, I mean, it sounds like, you know, it's Fulbright stuff. Um, IVLP is what it's technically called. And then merging that with cities that are emerging as powers and with a global problem. And so that's a sort of, I think, a, a, a dynamic combination of something we do really well because we're a, a global organization um, and have great depth uh, and something, but that we're finding new people to work with who are actually addressing some of these problems. And a lot of those new people are by definition at the city level. I see. Thanks very much. We have time for one more question. We'd like to uh, stay on time here at the Atlanta Council. <laughs> and I have um, Paula Stern uh, from the Atlanta Council Board of Directors. Right. Thank you very much. And actually, uh, it was it turned out a follow-on uh, rather uh, because Fred and I think we're somehow all channeled it together. Um, and I'm sorry that the mayor is not here because I kind of wanted to plant this in his mind. Um, gun violence. Uh, we talked about security uh, in, in the response to Fred's question um, was at, at one level, but when it comes to cities, when it comes to the United States, and when it comes to bilateral relations with Mexico, um, 
gun violence um, is something which we share, and it seems to me is uh, a, a, should be a priority. Um, and maybe even the U.S. can learn from Mexico or vice versa, but I don't think either country is going to solve their problems in, in, for, uh, alone. It's going to have to be done bilaterally, particularly in that area. So I guess I'm asking for uh, a, a response and also uh, planting that idea. Did you have something? No, please. No, I was just saying, I mean, um, it kind of relates, though, to something, a kind of a way, a more practical way I would have answered the question that Ian just answered, which is um, one of the ways that we're finding megacities working together well on is on countering violent extremism and on violent, mm -hmm. countering violent extremism yes. and conflict in general. And because m most of the recruiting for f CVE recruiting comes from urban males. Mm -hmm. And there are several U.S. cities that are coming up with very, uh, robust, innovative programs, community policing, basically, going back to back to the 80s, um, uh, to to try and address and, and and address communities and figure out how do we what is the narrative that works with young men to prevent them from going into these extremist narratives, and other cities around the world are struggling with that same issue. And for each country, and sometimes even each city within a country, there are different triggers and different narratives for these young men. Mm -hmm. So having cities being able to work together on these issues, it doesn't it directly address the gun violence, but that's part of it. But it is, yeah. And, and, and there's a lot of studies out there that show that, that, that males joining extremist groups is akin to males joining gangs. It's some, it's some of the same triggers, it's some of the same motivations. So we're finding that is, and, and, and State Department is very much um, focused on getting cities to talk to each other and come together to work on CVE and violence issues. Great. Well, thanks very much. I wish we had more time to talk to our uh, State Department officials here, but um, please join me in thanking them for their time and for their really innovative leadership on some key issues like, like cities. Thank you, Barry.